Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. I've been thinking a lot about humility over the past four and a half months. I think that uh, one of the powerful lessons for me, and I think for many of us, is of the pandemic has been humility, right? About like what our place in the world is and what we can accomplish, what we can't accomplish, what we know, what we don't know, what our power is, what our power isn't. And, and really, I think, as I think about it, you know, humility can be sort of like the batted, battened down version of humility, right? The battered version of humility. Um, but I think that our tradition offers other models of what humility can and should be like. And I want to offer those both in the spirit of these times, but in general to think as we head into the holidays, what really is, what really is humility? So uh, I'm going to share my screen, and uh, the way we're going to do this is that, uh, <clears throat> is that um, I'm going to talk, and I'll take some breaks. To, if, if there are questions, I can't really see all of you when I talk, but I will, I will take some breaks. And uh, Rabbi Schatz or Rabbi Klickfeld, uh, if you see that there's a lot of questions, feel free to jump in and, and, and let me know. So I want to start off with uh, a book that I remember very fondly reading, uh, David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. And in the book, uh, in the book, David Copperfield, there's a character, one of the main characters, whose name is Uriah Heep. And Uriah Heep says many, many times over the course of the book, something like, I'm the humblest pe- person going. Uh, should be quotation marks on both sides of that uh, quotation of that quote. And, um, and as you read the book, you are struck by something, which is that there are lots of ways that one might describe Uriah Heep in the book. Humble is not really the adjective that comes to mind first, right? He is manipulative and he's dishonest and he's obsequious, right? Hence the, hence the picture was used on an advertisement for, for cocoa in the 1890s, right? Like it sort of, you, you know, looks a little bashful, but looks a little evil as well. Um, so he's really not humble, like, it, and it's such an interesting, he's really the villain in many ways in the book. And, um, and I think what, what, uh, what Dickens is, play, is playing with is our notion of what is humble, right? And f- I think for a lot of people, humble means doormat. Humble means meek, like really in the extreme. Humble is sort of divorced from any kind of agency in the world. And what I want to talk about today, like I said, is a different view of what humility is. I think one I think that really comes from the sources. And we're going to look at starting off two sections from the Torah that offer like a story-based version of a, of what humility is. And then a, uh, a descriptive version, a prescriptive version of what humility is, and then, then we'll, then we'll go from there. So, so story. Um, the story is uh, Moshe. Uh, it's the middle of the episode where Moshe is a uh, is accused of things by his brother and sister, and in that narrative, the Torah says, and the man Moshe was exceedingly humble more than any other person on the face of the earth. So 
that's really quite a statement, right? I'm the humblest, man, hum, humblest person going, right? Uh, that is Uriah Heep's role model, right? This is this character who God says is the most humble in the world. But so what is it? And this is a question to anybody who wants to answer. What, and you're going to have to just unmute yourself and jump in because I'm not going to really be able to call on you. What is it about Moshe do you think that the Torah says is, thinks is humble? How is Moshe an exemplar of humility? You can unmute yourself, jump in. Hopefully it won't be a disaster. Moses' response takes responsibility for what he's supposed to do to help the Israelites most of the time. So, so humility as responsibility. Love that. What else? He has a willingness to learn that is unmatched and he transforms himself as a human being and his relationship with God that is also unmatched. Hmm. So willingness to learn, realizes that he doesn't have the whole law, is willing to reconsider, learns from his father-in-law Yitro. What was the second thing you said? That his relationship with God transforms mm. and his per- himself as a person and his relationship with God transforms. Nice. And, and so that relationship with God you're going to see is going to be an important theme that is going to influence how people think about humility and how one gets to a place of humility. Thank you. I'm sorry I'm not calling you by names. That's going to require another class when I can actually look at everybody. So, uh, any, yeah, anybody else? He doesn't shoot his own horn. He doesn't toot his own horn. Yeah, uh, he does not toot his own horn. So that's Moshe humble, right? And we could come up with other examples. He's a shepherd, right? Uh, he listens, you know, all of that. On the other hand, there are lots of counterfacts in the Moshe stories that would lead us away from describing him as humble, right? He is the guy who gets angry at the golden calf. He is argumentative with God when he sees what God wants to do to the Jews after the golden calf. He's not patient. See the whole water story. Uh, He aggressively confronts Pharaoh. He fights a war against Amalek, right? He stands up to castigate the Jewish people. Is that really humble? So if Moshe is humble, right, with the, because of the examples that you said and probably other examples, and he's all of these other things are those part of his humility or do those exist separate from his humility? And I think that that's a question that Jewish tradition is going to play with. I want you to think about, like, is humility something that stands alone, right, and can stand with all those other qualities? Or can humility somehow be synthesized and be part and parcel of an integrated personality that includes some of those things? And I'm going to give you a hint. I'm definitely going in that Direction. I love this picture at the bottom. It's by an artist named Leah Crust. And, um, and she, it's called uh, Moshe, Miriam, and Aaron having tea in the desert. I even like the title of it. And what I love about it is I'm thinking that Moshe is the character to the left. And the way I read the picture, right, you have these uh, Aaron and Miriam looking at Moshe, but Moshe is also looking at them. At first, I thought they were holding hands, Aaron and uh, Moshe and uh, Miriam, but I don't think that's exactly what's happening. But I love the fact that the characters are all on the same plane. And when I was looking for an illustration, the people uh, who were normally in my class, and there's a lot of people who take my classes uh, in Riverdale, know that I love art as a way of sort of being in conversation with. And most of the pictures I found of Moshe um, are of Moshe on a mountain, right? Like 
Moshe with a capital Mem. And this one has him really in relationship with his siblings, which I love, you know, along with the theme of humility. Later on in the Torah, actually in this week's Parsha. So this is uh, for, uh, for the rabbis here, uh, this week's Parsha. So in this week's Parsha and Shoftim, we have the future king as a test case, as an example of what it could look like to have a leader who is as humble as Moshe. And, and I think it's even going to take it one step further. So in Shoftim, it's talking about the laws of the king. And here's what it says. And it shall be when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to undo some of the gender sometimes, but I'm just going to leave some of it the way it is. And he shall write for himself a copy of this Torah in a book. And it shall be with him. And he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this Torah and the statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So this is such a powerful picture, right? It's a powerful picture and it's a painful picture to imagine a leader who is sitting, occupying his or herself, reading the law, being at one with God, right? Keeping the words of the Torah and the statutes and levilti rum levavo me'achav, right? That phrase down there, his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren. That sounds like all of those things are going to keep this king humble. Right, And because of that, he won't turn aside from the commandments. He won't go to the right. He won't go to the left. And he'll, live a long, he'll have a, a long reign. So the problem with this description, of course, is as any student of history knows, how many leaders have there been who have fit this ideal? Count them, right? Count them. Uh, count them. How many of us are there? There's uh, 40-something of us. You can use all of your fingers. I don't think we'll need all of our fingers to come up with rulers who really consistently reach this very, very, very high bar. And we don't even have to go modern history or medieval history in the, in the Torah, in the Bible, I'm sorry. Once we do have kings, right? And Shoftim kings are still a theoretical construct, right? When you have a king, we have 46 of us here. When you have a king, um, most of the kings in the, in the Tanakh don't, don't live up to this incredible thing. In fact, Mo, a, a much, much, much of the Tanakh is taken up with understanding how it could be that kings rule a long time, even though they don't fit this perspective, right? They don't actually act in this way. So the problem of leaders who don't live up to this very high standards is one that's been with us for a long time. But I want to focus in, what do you think it means, or what could it mean to define to, to talk about someone as that his heart or her heart not be lifted up above his or her brethren. I'm curious to hear, uh, to hear, hear your perspective if you want to unmute yourself and jump in. But what is it really saying? Like, what does that phrase mean? Because it doesn't say he shall be humble. It says something else. You're not better than anyone else. Yeah, you're not better than anyone else. Nice. What else? 
You don't get special privileges. <laughs> nice. You don't get special privileges. Good. And we're going we're gonna to get to a lot of that in the next source. Good. What do you think the heart means? Well, I think that you don't lose empathy for other people, that you recognize the suffering of your subjects. Mm. Right. So, so there's, a, there's a kind of an empathy that's suggested here, right? The heart in the Bible is sometimes heart, you know, sometimes emotions, sometimes it has to do with intellect, right? So there's a, there's a combination of things happening, but the, the, defini- the, the description is pretty short. In other words, this is a king who's reading, who's occupying his or herself, or a ruler who's occupying his or herself with the law. And then, you know, this empathy, this heart thing happens, and then there's a result. But we don't really understand from this text yet what that looks like. So Rambam, Maimonides, is going to tell us exactly what this looks like. He's not going to leave anything to the imagination. I can't really show you both the Hebrew and the English. Uh, I'll, I'll look at it in a second. So Rambam in the, in the Mishnah Torah defines what it is that a king should be. And he's definitely in conversation with our Parsha and with the previous selection about Moshe. So here's what it looks like to be a ruler who acts in the way that the Torah suggests. He shall not act more f- profound. I'm going to make it uh, kings or queens or rulers of, uh, he shall not act more proudly than necessary toward the people of Israel. She should be gracious and merciful towards the lowly and the great. He should show concern for their property and welfare. They should show regard for the dignity of the lowliest. When they address the public, they should speak gently. They should always behave with great modesty. None was greater than our teacher Moshe. He should put up with their troublesomeness, burdensomeness, complaining and irritation as a governor bears an infant, right? This notion of uh, actually, a, like a, think of like a governess, beer, bears an, an infant. Scripture dubs him as a shepherd to tend his people, Jacob. The way of the tra- shepherd is stated in tradition, that is the prophets, as a shepherd, he pastors his flock, he gathers the lambs in his arm, and he carries them in his bosom. So what I find fascinating about this description is this is an attempt to operationalize Moshe right, to kind of take the essence of Moshe and define it in a way that other people can follow, right? You want to know how to get to that thing that the Torah talked about with Moshe and talked about with the king? Well, here's the fine print. Here's how you operationalize this. How would you, what's your reaction to this list? I'm curious, anyone who has anything to say, what's your reaction to this? Hi. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't seem. Oh. Yeah. It doesn't seem anything like the king would believe himself to be like that. It's mm. like dampening him because of his great authority, and other people in his world are probably not even near this. Mm. I love that. You know, Ramban. The, the Ramba with an N at the end, Nachmanides, um, he actually says exactly that. He says, you know, a, a king, of course, is going to feel great and mightier than every, everybody else. Like, that's the natural state of things. And he says, and, that, and because the example is the king, if a king should have to kind of rein the king's self in, 
So we should rein ourselves in. And what Rambam adds in is, and the reason kings need to rein themselves in is because they're not the king of kings, right? They're not, they're not Malkenu with a capital Mem, right? They're not the high holiday king, right? They're not, they are, they're not a divine king. And kings need to understand that they are a rung below the divine king. And uh, Rabbi James Diamond writes about Maimonides' perspective. He says, in this adoption of the Maimonidean guidelines for extreme humility, humility, the king acts as the supreme existential model of imitatio dei, right? So the king here is imitating God, all the while, if you add in Ramban's addition, knowing that they are not God. So it's a very difficult line that we're asking our rulers to, to walk. And if you listen to Ramban, if you're, that we're expected to walk. What's interesting about these is, this list, is that none of them says the king doesn't have power. In fact, power is in almost every one of these examples, right? You should not act more proudly than necessary, right? Like, like I know I got a lot of power. I'm going to tone it down. I'm going to turn down the volume in order to fulfill this mandate to be humble. I should be gracious and merciful to the lowly and the great, right? It's understanding station and understanding, of course, that the king is the greatest station, but being gracious anyway. Uh, it's what we want from God, right? All over the high holiday liturgy. Uh, concern for property and welfare, regard for the dignity of the lowly, lowliest, right? Speaking gently, modesty, and then um, I know there's a bunch of pulpit rabbis on here. Uh, the king, the ruler should put up with their troublesomeness, burdensomeness, complaining and irritation, um, right? So even part of your job as a ruler is you got to put up with people's stuff, right? And when you're a ruler, you become the repository in many ways for all kinds of things that people are feeling. And in some ways, per Rabbi Diamond, you become the stand-in for God, right? So, so what's interesting here, again, is that there's lots of power here, but the king is reining in the king's power. The king is not doing everything that the king could do, right? The king has a lot of power. The ruler has a lot of power, and they're pulling themselves back in order to be this Maimonidean medium way in the world, like following this, this golden mean in the world. So this king is ruling, not a shrinking violet at all, but balance, you're not God, but you're also not a lowly commoner. You have power, and the question is, how are you going to use that power? So I'm curious if there's any reactions or questions or anything. I have a thought about yep. it. To me, it feels like a very outmoded model for humility that it specifically does apply to a king and not for um, a leader in a democratic society, especially the last uh, bullet point to me really jumps out as being extremely patronizing and the opposite of humility, calling the people um, an infants um, as opposed to your equals, um, calling them sheep as opposed to humans uh. who are your equals. Like it's a very, very patronizing and outmoded way. Like it's great for a king um, but we don't live in a monarchy, and our systems within our country are not monarch, mo whatever the word is. Um, <laughs> and so to me, this is not of a, a humble model for a leader in our modern society who sees the time of 
their people as valuable as their own and as a much more in a much more egalitarian way. Yeah, I think that there's definitely something dated about this. I think um, <clears throat> at the same time, I think that there's, I think he's speaking aspirationally and his aspirations, right? I, I get it might not be exactly our aspirations, but I think, you know, I think we can all come up with leaders, you know, even in modern times who, you know, who, who don't live up to what, even what you just described, right? Like, and they kind of do need these warnings because in their heads, they're acting in a very different way. But I, I totally hear what you have to say. Um, other reactions? I I'm think wondering. the guidelines are not out of reach for most uh, people who were in that position. The practical uh, principles, perhaps, there's seven of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I was looking at each one of these, uh, I kind of like them for myself. I'm not sure I could do all of these, but uh, they're not out of reach for most of mm. uh, mature adults. Mm. So, so sort of as a like a kind you know, of list of things to do. One, one of the things that I love about both pieces is that they are, as you just said, aspirational that a person's humility is not judged as a description of who he or she is, but how he or she acts, how mm. they respond. And mm. it's a very powerful way to look at it. Mm. So the difference between who, what, who a person is and how they act. I think Rambam for sure would, uh, would, I think that's what he was going for, right? He was going for a list of how to operational, like what to do to be humble, not some inherent quality. How, so, like, um, how, I keep thinking of FDR, uh, who, of course, was very upper crust, but had this way of understanding the people, his fireside chats and all that. And there's that famous story of someone crying as his funeral train went by and and someone asking, well, did you know him? He said, well, no, I didn't know him, but he knew me. Mm. So that, to me, is a model of this kind of gracious leader who who Mm. understands everyone. Yeah, I love that. I love that story. I actually just finished the book uh, Leadership by the historian. I'm forgetting her name. Uh, where, where there's a lot of examples of, um, you know, of four different American presidents and how they embodied exactly exactly what you just described. Right, that sense of leaders. And and the interesting thing in the book is she looks at four leaders: uh, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR. Uh, Johnson and Lincoln. And she points out that each one of them had a personal crisis in their lives that helped them get in touch with exactly that thing that you just, uh, exactly that thing that you just uh, talked about, right? That sense of knowing other people and knowing their pain and knowing their suffering. Nice. Thank you. I, I also was thinking that I don't know if humility could be taught, but if you look at Moses and his origin story, which I'm sure his family told him about all the time, it was really rather precarious, and who knew whether he would even live? Mm. And uh, again, when you talk about FDR, he had polio. So there, so... Uh, you might need a, a personal crisis early in your life to give you this humility. 
you know, that that could be a possibility. And also, I think the historian you're talking about is Doris Kern Goodwin. Yes, that is who exactly I'm speaking about. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, so I think right, so how biography pays, plays into this and, and particularly in the Moshe story, right? Like Rambam is definitely talking about the Moshe story, right? And Moshe was a shepherd and, um, and, uh, and, but Moshe also understood because of his own biography, understood what, what it was like to live in the palace, what it was like to be a fugitive from the palace, you know, what it was like to come back to the palace as a leader on behalf of God. So Moshe is someone who was sort of on the elevator between the different floors of, of, you know, where, where you stand in terms of power and, and understand, had firsthand experience in different ways of being, which is, which is really interesting. Um, great. So, so um, I want to move a little bit modern um, in that um, there's a bunch of modern thinkers who really talk, I think, in a really powerful way about, you know, what all this means. And somebody uh, said before, like, that ah, doesn't, really, doesn't really speak to me because our leadership structures are not roy- monarchies, right? They're democracies, right? We have different expectations of our leaders and, you know, different models of what we want for, you know, different metaphors for the relationship. Um, and these are two of many sources that, I f- that, that really bring home for me this sense of balance and the challenge of finding the balance. So the first one is Rabbi Dr. Ruth Abish Magder. <clears throat> and she points out something that I think is important to keep in mind. Humility is essential to keep rabbis from, from confusing the work we do and the service of God with being as great as God. But at the same time, I'm not just a rabbi, I'm a woman rabbi. And when it comes to women, humility gets complicated. Humility is freedom from pride or arrogance. It comes from the Latin root humilis, which mean, literally means low, and also suggests modesty or a lower sense of self-importance. But what passes as pride or arrogance is often judged more harshly in women than men. And when women do not push through the modesty thrust upon them, should be them, by societal expectations of womanhood, they are unlikely to get noticed. In other words, for women being humble can get in the way of doing God's work or any other work for that matter. So I think that was, you know, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, right? That we have an awareness of, awareness of things around gender that, you know, I don't think that the Torah or Rambam really, they were, they were not thinking in those terms. And I think that, um, you know, I think she's expressing something that's really important for us to remember is that what, what passes as humility in some people right in other people actually stands in the way of them finding that balance because you know going back to the the beginning right the sort of the, the basic understanding i think in society about humility is it's kind of being super meek and quiet almost being a doormat right and like clearly that's not so good on the other hand right what's the other you know what's the other thing right it's like the two the two pieces of paper in you know in your pocket for me, the world was created or I am dust and ashes, right? Which one are we in the world? And, and I think there's a, a growing realization that it's not one size fits all and that people interpret humility in different ways, depending on who is demonstrating it, right? And I think it's something that we are, like we are seeing play out in real time every single day um, in our country right now. And now Rabbi Shraga Simmons, first let's clarify what humility is not. Humility does not mean 
a meek reluctance to speak up or be assertive. Humility is not slouching your soldiers or having low self-esteem. Humility is the ability to be objective about one's own position vis-a-vis everyone else. If I'm in a position to lead, then I should lead. And if not, I should defer. I must know where I stand and not take undue liberties. I think both of these are, are talking really powerfully about what it means to balance. And I think that anyone who's ever been in a leadership position, whether that's a leadership position in society, in a Jewish community, in a home, in a family system, uh, at work, I think we're always trying to figure this out, right? Where do we speak up? Where do we not speak up? What is the legitimate place for us to use our power? How, when we use it, do we use it in a way that doesn't trample over other people, doesn't minimize other people, doesn't treat other people like sheep, right? But, but really respects the divinity in each human being. And, and I think what these two sources are talking about is how do we find that balance? I'm curious, how do we find that balance? Anybody want to speak to that? In, in, either in terms of, it could be in a, here's how I find that balance. It could be in a story. Of somebody who was, I, I think the balance. balance depends on the person who's doing the balancing. Hmm. I think that uh, you know what your, your strong points are and what your problems are, and deal with them accordingly. It's to conquer your yetsahara, so to speak. Hmm. Hmm. Thank you. Actually, I think the problem with the second definition is it allow it allows everyone to claim, to claim that they are humble. Right. If, if you are defining what humility means, humility is the ability to be objective about one's own position vis-a-vis everyone else. I am sure that the majority of people feel that they are objective about their own position vis-a-vis everyone else. And therefore, they, given this, they, it would allow them to describe themselves as being humble. And to me, that's a, that's a big weakness in the definition. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Rabbi Klickfeld, Rabbi Klickfeld, do you know a joke about uh, everyone thinking that they're humble? I do, but I think you can tell it better than I can. <laughs> right? It's the famous. And I think everybody knows it. It's joke 13A in the big book. Come on, come on, tell it, tell it, tell it. It's era of Yom Kippur, just a little bit before Kol Nidre is supposed to begin. And, uh, you know, a, a Jew walks into the sanctuary before services begin, and he sees up on the, uh, on the bima in front of the Rona Kodesh, the rabbi and the cantor, each doing something very interesting. The rabbi is falling down onto the ground and prostrating himself before the Aaron Kodesh and saying, Holy One, Rebona Sha'olam, I'm a nothing, I'm a zero, I'm humble before you in, in relationship to your great greatness. I couldn't possibly be more small. The cantor falls down even more strongly onto the floor and says, I am even less than nothing. I am half of nothing. I'm a tenth of nothing. You are infinitesimally great and I'm infinitesimally small. They go back and forth out nothinging each other. And the Jew figures maybe this is what he's supposed to do before Yom Kippur. So he falls down to the ground from the back of the room. And he says, Rebona Sha'olam, I am nothing. I am zero. I am I'm infinitesimally small compared to you. The rabbi looks at the cantor and says, ha, look who thinks he's a nothing. <laughs> Ba-dum-pum. Ba-dum-pum. Um, an oldie but goodie. But I think uh, connected to the last comment, like can we really have a sense of our own you know, our own humility, right? Like, can we ever be objective? I think a lot of these sources are asking us to train an eye on our humility. And I think, you know, the last person who spoke is really saying it's very hard to do. 
right? And, and maybe what that leads to is, you know, maybe we need humility partners, you know, someone who's going to be our person who says, mm, like, you're, you're crossing the line, right? Like, if you look at the, my, little, uh, my little clip art at the bottom, right, you're, you're crossing the line from a nice balance between confidence and humility to really being, like, you think you're being hum- humble, but it's really not, right? The, the humble brag on Facebook. Other comments about uh, about these sources or in general, kind of where we are in, in uh, you know, where I am in, in like this argument that humility is really a kind of a balancing act as opposed to a on or off switch. Jennifer. Yeah, Jennifer. Um, I was going to say, I, I don't remember where I heard this, but um, every time I hear or see a person thanking uh, the world or an organization for an award or recognition. Um, I just cringe when I see that they are humbled by this because um, actually, you know, if you're nominated for the democratic uh, uh, nomination or if you're, um, if you've been asked to be on a special panel, um, I, I think that when you say you're humble, you are not being, um, really uh, truthful. And uh, what would be a better thing to say is I'm honored uh, to do this because I think that using the word humble is, uh, you know, they're being hypocritical. Um, and I see that all the time and always want to call it out. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts about that or in general about what kind of where we are? Yeah, Eddie. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I I have a sense that, you know, balance is important, and I certainly like um, the the comment about women. Um, but this idea that, you, you know, that you have a sense of knowing when to lead or when to step back, it can lead to either conflict or non-action in some communities where too many potential leaders step back and say, I'm not ready to lead or everyone, you know, too many think that they're, they should be in charge. Um, so that self assessment is, I think, potentially problematic. So what would you suggest as the antidote to that? Well, you mentioned, you know, humility buddies, but I mean, but you know, uh, you know, the concept of having people able to talk truth to power <laughs> that we hear so much today, um, to the extent that can be a realistic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe one way of dealing with that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you know, I once, uh, I was once at a seminar and it, it was talking about encouraging lay leadership in synagogues. And one of the points of the speaker was that, uh, you know, synagogues, you know, synagogues that are good synagogues have a lot of dedicated lay leaders. Um, but there's probably a lot of other people who are not putting themselves forth into leadership. And, and the reason they're not is because you didn't ask them, you know, they're not the people who are going to put themselves out there. And sometimes that person who just needs to be like noticed a bit and asks, asked actually is, you know, has the potential to really transform an organization, right? Those, those people who by nature are a little bit more on the, humble side of things. And for them, humble is like a, a falling back, just sort of calling on them um, is a, you know, can be a really empowering act for them and for the organization as a whole. 
other, other thoughts about where we are? Humility is something like I wrestle with every day on, and I work in entertainment and it's huh. like not the field where it's rewarded, but personally it's something I value. And so I'm like, how do I navigate this? What does that mean? And so for me, I don't know that I, that the humility versus confidence model, I don't know that that necessarily works for me personally. I think it might be a humility as a self, um, humility being like other focused and, Hmm. and making it about discernment and seeing and learning from others as opposed to um, self-presentation that comes from possible arrogance or lack of confidence. Um, But it's something I really struggle with as a woman in entertainment, but valuing humility and not always knowing, like, what is the working definition of that word? It's like a mind puzzle. So I appreciate this class very much. Thank you. Yeah, I I totally hear you. I think, uh, you know, I mean, I I think we could put a lot of words in the bubble, you know, in the globes or whatever those things are in balance. Um, I, I think it is really hard. You know, I know somebody who is a super smart woman and if, if she's in a class and she even has a thought in her head about something she wants to say, she turns bright, bright, bright red before she's raised her hand or said anything because she's just nervous about like putting her idea out there. And when she talks, you always want to say, oh, like, why didn't you say that earlier? That was, that adds so much to the discussion, but like she has something going on in her own head that's you know, kind of embarrassed to speak, not sure if she's worthy to speak. And, and I think a lot of people struggle with that, right? Like, you know, but at the same time, you know, how do you in life find those moments where you do put yourself out there? When I was, um, when I was 21 years old, I worked at a summer camp and I was a unit head. And I remember after the first month, we would have these late night unit head meetings. So it was like long, long meetings. And they were very ideological. It was a Zionist youth group and youth movement. And it was very ideological. People were fighting it out. And I was very quiet in those meetings. Like I really felt, felt like it was Clash of the Titans. And I just wanted to go to sleep. It was really late at night. And I was just super quiet. And at the end of the first month, uh, a guy who had been at the camp for many, many years said to me, you know, Barry, you need to speak up at those meetings. And I said, you know, I said, it's late. You know, I felt like people were going on. And he said, well, he said, your perspective is really important. He said, if that's what you're thinking, say that. Like some of those people need to hear someone saying, really, do we need to, you know, kind of go around or to hear what you have to say. And the other thing he, he said to me, which I thought was really interesting, he said, you know, you're doing some really good things in your, you know, in your group of, with your group of kids, you know, you're making some mistakes as well. And you need to talk about those things in the group, both to get support for the things that you're struggling with, but also they can see the things that you're doing well. Like you have to put yourself out there. And, you know, it wasn't my, it wasn't my default to kind of put myself in that position, to put myself in the center of that. But it was a really important learning. It's something that I also, I, I really resonate with uh, whatever, what you just, what, what you just said. Um, to kind of bring it home, <clears throat> um, I have three things that talk a little bit about what I, what I think is a, like some first steps towards the practicum here, which, uh, which I think that, uh, you know, I think was promised in the, in the title that I came up with. I don't know if it's like a fully formed idea, but it's, these are definitely things that I've been thinking about. So 
I think one of the things that comes from a lot of the sources that we read so far is the, I don't know everything, right? Moshe is an example, as several people pointed out, of someone who knows when to get advice from other people, knows when to kind of consult a higher authority. Um, you know, the king who is, has the law book, right? Like by definition is learning from. And so there's a sense of not knowing everything. And uh, Judith Rosenbaum, who, who was a director of the Jewish Women International, I think it's called. Um, so Dr. Judith Rosenbaum, she talks about, she was talking about uh, intersectionality and how complicated it is, intersectionality. And she wrote something that I think could apply to pretty much anything. I don't know the answers. I'm scared, disappointed, exhausted, enraged, and 20 other emotions every other day before breakfast, trying to understand how we got here and how we can move together, move forward together productively. All I can do is share my experience, listen to yours, and continue working for a better future with humility. So, you know, she, she's someone who has really, uh, like, interesting opinions about things. So, so, you know, her scared, disappointed does not stop her from putting herself out there, but I think she's exposing like an important part of humility practice is recognizing that scared, disappointed, exhausted part of ourselves, right? The sense that we really don't know, like I don't know, right? When, when looking at all of the things that we face as a society, as a Jewish people, as a country right now, I don't know the answers, right? Like all the pulpit rabbis here who are trying to figure out like, what does it look like to do the high holidays? I don't know what the right thing is, right? Like we're all guessing. Uh, right? Educators on the call thinking about what does it look like to open up schools or not open up schools and Zoom schools. People are working in other industries. We're all trying to figure it out. And I think the bottom line is we don't know the answers. And sometimes just being able to admit that is incredibly, for me, incredibly grounding. Not that it stops me from, you know, kind of ultimately getting to an answer, but just saying that at the beginning, I think sometimes also opens up the conversation and allows other people in. If I don't know the answer, right, then I'm depending on somebody else here maybe to help me, help me get there. Another piece I think of humility work is understanding that it's not about me. Um, you know, so there's this moment in high holiday services where uh, the shliach tzibor, the cantor, gets up and says, hineni ha'animi mas, hineni ha'animi mas, nirash v'nifchad mipachad yoshev tilot Yisrael, hineni ha'animi mas, Behold, I stand here, impoverished in good deeds, overcome and in awe of God, the one who was enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And it's this recognition that even though this person is trained and they're sort of ready for the high holiday moment, right, the, the, the place where they want to inhabit is a place of, you know, I don't really know, what, what, you know, kind of what I have to, to put forth here, right? I, I don't really know if I'm worthy to do this and this sense that like, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm literally a shaliach, right? I'm literally an emissary for other people at this moment, right? It's not about me, right? And, uh, and I think, you know, how, how do we have a moment over the high holidays where we realize it's not about, it's not about me? Um, and, then, um, and then the last source is uh, the Orchot Sadikim's 15th century German source. And he says, all of the good things I do are but a drop in the ocean in comparison what I, with what I ought to do. That sense of, right, there's, 
you know, you do good things. You should be proud of that. That's great. But there's a lot more to do. And I think the, that limits and potential of our, of our power is, I think, you know, hinted at by, by the Rambam a little, a lot, actually, and sort of this you know, ruler who is ruling, but also is holding back in certain ways. Um, and, and I think asking ourselves, like, what is the power that we have? When do we use it? When do we choose to hold back? Right? In many ways, I think right now, because of the pandemic, we're all, you know, literally confined, right? We are, we are, our wings are clipped in so many ways, but are there things that we could be doing, right? That we could be doing, that we ought to be doing. Maybe that's the first thought. And then like, what is it? What is it that we can do to reach out to other people, to be parts of communities in active ways, maybe in ways that we never really thought of ourselves, you know, as being in the past? Um, you know, what does it mean to recognize our gifts and, and ultimately to, to use them? Um, an interesting thing about, uh, about the story that I started with, and then I'll, I'll open it up to general, general comments. Um, so if you read the book, if you read uh, David Copperfield again, you know, you'll read about Uriah Heep. And like I said, he's, you know, he always talks about how humble he is, but, uh, but you know, he's really not a character you would describe as humble. He's manipulative. He's so many things. But as you read the book, you learn some interesting things about Uriah Heep. He was actually uh, given over by his parents to, uh, I guess you'd call it an orphanage or like a, a charity home. And in the charity home, he was told over and over and over again, be grateful for everything we give you, right? It's sort of the, the perversion of charity, right? As like, oh, I feel so bad for you. I'm going to give you this thing. You should be happy that you get a bowl of gruel today or whatever it is that you get. And so he took that lesson, right? And, you know, like he learned to say, I'm humble. He, he kind of lost, you know, he kind of lost it along the way. Um, and he turned manipulative and he became a thief and he became, uh, you know, he really had, you know, lived with a lot of rage. I mean, that's what, that's what uh, Dickens is suggesting that there's a lot of rage in this guy that's, that's turning him from someone who is actually humble to someone who is really not someone that any of us would want to spend much time with. And I think, you know, what Dickens does in the story is he, he, uh, he forces us to confront the fact that we've judged this character without knowing the full story, right? We still might judge him as a bad character, but I think it is interesting, like to understand the backstory of this character, right? And to understand that we just don't know everything about the people that we interact with. We just don't know, right? The, one of my favorite lines of, uh, of, of liturgy is, right? Ata yodea raze olam. God, you know the secrets of the world. You know what's in everybody's deepest, deepest, innermost parts. And the, you know, parentheses is, and I don't. Like I walk into Shul, or I walk into my live stream this year, Shul, and I know that there's going to be so many worlds out there, so many people listening that I don't know what their experience is, right? I can guess at it. I'm going to have to guess at it, right? But, but not admitting and knowing in a deep way that you just don't know what another person's experience is. Like what makes an Uriah Heap into an Uriah Heap? You might judge him just as harshly, but, but you understand him in a different way. I think it's a brilliant move by Dickens reminding us that we really don't know everything. Even when we think we know things, we really don't know things. So I think that in terms of practical, practical things, I don't know everything. It's not about me. I have limited power, but I also have infinite power. Maybe infinite power, maybe that's God's, but I have a lot of power. And how do I deploy that? I think 
those are at least some, some stepping stones to living a life that is a, a kind of a grounded humility, not a doormat kind of humility, but a humility that actually you can live in the world and you can thrive and you can be out there and have a name and be a person in the world. And at the same time, have that elusive sense of, uh, of what it means to take up just the right amount of space. So I'm curious if there's questions, comments, anything. Rabbi Katz, maybe we can um, stop sharing the screen. Yep. It'll be easier for us to see if people raise yep. their hand. Yes, I will do that. Great. Thanks. People can also unmute themselves, but if you would like to raise your hand either virtually or physically. Right. And, uh, and I wasn't able to look at all the chat. So if you have something in the chat that you would like to say out loud, please say it out loud. Terry, you're unmuted. Would you like to say something? Uh, yeah, I would like to say something. Um, I remember many years ago when my son was in nursery school and Rabbi Jeanette Ornstein was his teacher. They uh, it was from the Y nursery school and they went uh, to um, Yeshiva University and they did a whole lesson about various children's books. And one of the ones that I loved so much was by Eric Carle called Why Noah Chose the Dove. Like every animal came to him, oh, send me out, I'm great, I'm this and I'm that. And at the end of the story, Noah chose the dove because the dove never came to him uh, saying how great that he was. Oh, uh, maybe more children should uh, be exposed to uh, to that book. But I really thought that that was basically this concept that if someone, uh, you know, and the humility does come out mm, and yeah. uh, at the risk of sounding like I'm, uh, you know, quote, brown nosing. But Rabbi Katz, you do have a sense of caring and humility and calling on everyone. And in effect, that is your great strength. Anyone who says they know everything, I mean, you know that you, you know that they uh, don't. You just have to hope that you have um, now a shout out for the, your scholars, have intelligent people who can recognize that about you. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I think there's some adults who could read who should read that book as well. I agree. And I think uh, I think Ruth Weintraub has a story she wants to share. Sure. And then Edie Parker. Ruth, you're gonna have to unmute yourself. Especially for women, but it could have to do with men also. Um, I was brought up with a very authoritarian uh, father who was always right. And I was really afraid of being wrong. Hmm. everything I did was wrong so when I got married and married as you know a very long time there were two two occasions that I remember that I wanted to say something to my husband that I was kind of afraid to say I needed courage by the way I could do anything outside the house that's okay I could do anything I wanted outside the house I just couldn't when I was young hmm. and and my husband, you know, was a lawyer, and he was somewhat overwhelming quite often to me, too. And the two things took me a long, long, long time. One took over a year, and the other, I don't remember how long to say. 
And eventually, at each time, I said what I felt, and it made an enormous difference. Hmm. That women need to assert themselves and not be humble <laughs> when they don't have to be. I'm curious, what, what got you over the hump? Like, what, what made you say it? Just, I don't know. Well, I saw a psychiatrist, and she encouraged me. Hmm. Okay. That's, that's what happened. <laughs> Love that. Love that. Uh, Edie. Well, what she just said, I will say, though, that's not necessarily not being humble, which is what we were talking about. I mean, it isn't, it isn't not humble. It isn't not humble to say what you are thinking. It's the way you say it. So what I was going to say is I think it, although this isn't very um, brilliant, but, you know, to me, a lot of it, too, comes from the whole treat other people the way you would want to be treated. And just because you're a ruler or just because you have some degree of authority or whatever, if you spend, and the same thing with like the Maimonides kind of, I had or, called them rules, the things that you were talking about. And it's like, I think a lot of those things that are objective sort of give you away. That's sort of like your sounding board. Like those kinds of things can kind of be your partner is that when you look back at those because every so often you kind of do need a little refresher on you know how you're behaving and how you want to behave towards others and all of that but a lot of it again it still comes back to treating others the way you would want to be treated no matter what your role is it's not the power that you have it's the way you use the power and mm -hmm. the way you make your people feel when you're providing that structure or whatever so that's been around for a long time, and sometimes we forget, Is all, I guess, is what I'm saying. Thank you. I think we have time for one last comment. Um, I see this as a little bit of a, um, a battle between self-confidence and recognizing strength, whether the strength, you recognize the strength from within or someone has said, wow, I really think you can do this. And, um, but how you carry on the strength and the way you go forth, therein lies the humility. Thank you. Really perfect, perfect last words. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.